Good morning, my friends. I want to add my uh, welcome to Chris's. I'm Matthew, if I haven't met you. And it is a joy to be able to address you from the word of God that Chris just led us in thanking God for. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, uh, please open it to the book of James. It's a small book in the New Testament, tucked right in after the book of Hebrews. And if you're thinking, I don't know where either one of those are, As I'm fond of saying, there's a reason your Bible has a table of contents. Use it if you need to. No shame in that. Uh, Last Sunday, we we finished a series of sermons from the Psalms entitled, Fear Not. Uh, You know, when, when the coronavirus came crashing into our world eight weeks ago, altering daily life for our church family and our community, I think it was easy to be afraid. Uh, There were a lot of unknowns. It was good to remember that even when there are reasons to fear, there are always what? Better reasons to trust the Lord. But you know, the longer this mandatory social distancing continues, and the more life with the coronavirus becomes kind of a new normal, uh, my greatest concern for you as your pastor isn't as much whether we will fight our temptations to fear with God's word. That's certainly important. We need to continue doing that. Uh, My greatest concern as your pastor at this point, friends, is whether our, our physical separation, and in particular our inability to gather for corporate worship, will will occasion a slide of sorts in your heart, into spiritual apathy. You know, the, the, the strength, the spiritual strength that we derive from the weekly gathering of the saints is priceless. You can't put a price tag on that. Hebrews ten twenty three says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering or doubting for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. What do we see there? That our faithful God keeps us faithful to himself through the example and the encouragement of his people. And so when we're we're distant from God's people, I think it's easy to start to feel distant from God. We can start to coast spiritually, assuming our relationship with God instead of doing the hard work necessary to help it grow. You might not consciously decide to walk away from Jesus. We just don't think about him as much. We stop pressing in to know and enjoy him. Things like reading his word or spending time in prayer just suddenly, gradually, (laughs) become less and less frequent. Maybe you know in your head that being a Christian should impact the way you live, even when you're confined at home. But but if you're honest, right now, in, in this new normal, God doesn't feel as relevant in your daily routine. You might say that the the holding pattern 
that we're in socially and, and economically has crept into your soul. Your faith feels cold. Our old temptations to sin are, are resurfacing. You, you have all this discretionary time, but it's not actually helping you grow spiritually. To the contrary, you feel increasingly aimless and adrift. And I think the danger of spiritual apathy in a time like this, friends, warrants careful attention to the book of James. Okay, James, uh, as best we know, uh, was written not by the apostle James, who died fairly early, uh, shortly after uh, Jesus ascended, but was actually written by James, the brother of the Lord, who was an upstanding and visible and respected leader in the early church. Uh, we learn in James verse 1 that, that he was writing this book, this letter, primarily to a Jewish audience, Jewish exiles who were scattered around the Mediterranean world. And if you work through James, you, you'll find it's a hard-hitting book. <laughs> you know, it's an in-your-face kind of book. He, he writes to shake his readers out of an anemic faith that would try to leave Jesus on the shelf of religious knowledge where he has little to no impact on the way we actually live day to day. James isn't void of theology or or truth about God by any stretch. And yet, his main focus is squarely on how we should live in light of who God is. Okay, it's, it's a practical book. It's an application-oriented book. And from the very beginning of chapter 1, James just comes crashing into this pile of real-life issues like suffering and decision-making and what we do with our tongue and speech and money and relationships and temptations to sin and prayer and the list goes on. What does it look like, very practically, to follow Jesus instead of becoming spiritually apathetic? And in many ways, he writes the same way Jesus taught. Sharp and clear and to the point. And I love that. Some of you are getting excited just even in hearing me say that because that's how you like to talk and be talked to. James doesn't spend all this time qualifying himself or being politically correct or or softening the truth or, or trying not to offend us. He's actually good at getting in our business. And messing with our business. It's hard to read James and not be convicted, in other words. And I think, friends, that's exactly what our souls need right now. To keep running hard after Jesus. And I say that recognizing that some of you listening to me may be on the fence about Christianity. Maybe you have some hesitations, some some questions. Maybe you've been around professing Christians who, who said they believed this or that. But they actually, when you watch them, seem to live just like everyone else. And you're wondering, understandably, if if all this God stuff really makes a difference. Or if Christianity is just another road to hypocrisy. Friend, if that's you, James is going to be really good for you too. Okay? Because it proves real Christianity isn't idle. It's a faith that works. And that's the title of this sermon series, A Faith That Works. So let's hear the word of God from James verses 1 to 12. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded or double-souled man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Lord Jesus, Would you meet us right now this morning? The outset, we we confess the parts of our heart that are spiritually apathetic. And we pray, Lord, that for our good and your glory, you would stir us up this morning, not to to legalistic self-effort to try to earn your love or approval by just trying harder, but to faithful, diligent, fighting for the holiness without which no one sees the Lord, obedience of Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray in your name I ask. Amen. Amen. You know, as we wade into this book, I, I think of how my extended family, just track with me here for a second, okay, has always enjoyed playing word games. And one of my favorites is a game called Taboo. It's a word association game where, where you try to get your team to say the key word on your card without using all the other relevant related words on your card. Those are banned words. Can't use them. So for example, if the key word is pandemic, the taboo words I'm not allowed to use in my description might be virus or quarantine or sickness, or global, or, or influenza. And of course, those are the words that we usually associate with pandemic, which is what makes the game challenging. So if I want to get my team to say pandemic, I might have to get creative and say a situation that makes people buy massive quantities of toilet paper, assuming they share our, our recent COVID-19 experience. But I want to try a little word association experiment with you right now. If the word is trials, 
What related words come to your mind? What would you expect to find on the taboo card? Well, I would expect words like difficult, hard, painful, challenge, and test. But you know, James, without denying any of those, answers the question in rather shocking fashion because he associates two words with trials that are definitely not on my instinctive list, okay? And those words are joy and blessing. (laughs) Joy in verse two, blessing in verse 12. And these verses, using those verses as as bookends of sorts here, Everything in the middle, it functions as an introduction of sorts to various themes that James is going to circle back to over and over again later in the letter. But, but even in the introduction, there's a unifying center. There's a main point here, and it, it's found in the bookends, verses 2 and 12. James tells us that faith works. It makes a difference in our lives. It's practical. It shows up by giving us a cause for joy in the midst of every sort of trial. Okay, so no matter the precipitating factors, in other words, okay, no matter why this particular hard circumstance has, has come your way, when it does, Christian, James is saying to you, you have a reason to rejoice. And I think that's kind of shocking. <laughs> And a bit stunning. That's not what I would put on my taboo card. And yet it is one of the most distinctive marks of genuine Christianity. So here's our question. Why should we rejoice in trials? I think James gives us at least three answers. Here's the first. Why should we rejoice in trials? Because trials strengthen our faith. Verses two to four. Look at verse two with me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know, there are different kinds of tests, aren't there? Some tests merely reveal the presence or absence of something. So the swab for COVID-19 is like that. Reveals whether you have the virus. Okay, a multiple choice SOL in history, which some of you listening are thanking God you're not having to take this year, reveals whether or not you paid any attention in class. Okay, but but there's another kind of test that does more than just reveal something. It actually creates something. It builds something. A, A speed workout at the track is that sort of test. So is the, the constant tension in a, in a high rep set of weightlifting. Your fitness level grows as a result of taking a test like that. And to switch metaphors, you know, if, if, you, if you heat up silver or gold to extremely high temperatures, it's the same kind of test. It, it doesn't just reveal whether you have a precious metal or a painted plastic. It actually purifies and strengthens that metal. It it removes chemical elements that would otherwise compromise its worth and value. And the test of faith that James speaks of in verse 3 is the second kind of test, okay? Why do I say that? 
Well, whenever you encounter a trial, okay, an unpleasant situation, whether that's relational, financial, physical, spiritual, you always have a choice. Always. You can choose to persevere in trusting and obeying God, even when it's hard, or you can deal with the trial in whatever way seems best to you. And when we choose to respond God's way, something is produced. James calls it steadfastness, okay, which is another word for endurance or spiritual strength. And, and when our spiritual strength grows through trials, what happens? Look at verse four. We become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We, we grow in holiness. Okay, we, we become more like Jesus. Let me give you an example. If your spouse or sibling attacks or tears you down with your words, not, not that any of us have ever experienced that, and, and you fire back with a witty barrage of your own, or my preferred response, you relationally disengage and you give them the silent treatment. What happens? Well, everything gets worse, right? They get angrier. You become more bitter. You lose ground spiritually. But what if you actually repay their evil with good? Well, then regardless of the response, you grow spiritually. Listen, your, your choice to forbear doesn't just change what happens in that moment. It actually makes you a more patient person. It strengthens your ability to overcome evil with good in the future. That muscle of spiritual patience that you just persevered in exercising, it actually starts to grow. You become just a little bit more like God himself, slow to anger and, and abounding in steadfast love. But, but let's be honest, friends. Even as I say that, in the middle of a trial, we often don't care about becoming more like Jesus, do we? We, we, we just want the trial to go away as fast as possible. So, so we say or try to do whatever it takes to, to just make it stop. And if we can't stop it, we try to avoid or escape the situation. So if the bills are piling up, we keep ignoring them. If, if our spouse is unreasonable, we leave them. If a classmate says something offensive on Facebook, we unfriend them. Look at verse four. Why, why is it? Think, think about this. Why are we so unwilling to let steadfastness have its full effect? Well, I think it's because, if we're honest, we don't want to become more like Jesus. We just want comfort, convenience, and security. But, but here's the reality, friend. Please hear this. You will never rejoice in the midst of trial until conformity to Christ is a desirable thing in your eyes. And conformity to Christ Becoming holy as he is holy will never be a desirable thing in your eyes worth the pain and anguish of endurance unless Christ himself is desirable to you. 
Okay, so does that mean, I, I can hear the objection, that the whole process of growing spiritually, having our faith strengthened through trials, is somehow held hostage by our lack of love for Jesus? Well, praise God, no, right? Love for Jesus is one of the very things that trials perfect and complete in us if we're willing to persevere in trusting and obeying God in the midst of them. Why? Because when we do, we discover, even in great sorrow, that our God keeps his promises. He cares for us. He sustains us. He he makes us more like himself. And as we experience his faithfulness, we what? We grow in our gratitude and love for him, which does what? Turns right around and strengthens our ability to persevere in that trial in the first place. So friend, refuse. I charge you. Refuse to make your greatest goal in life avoiding hardship. Make becoming more like Jesus and the intimacy you will experience with him as a result, your highest ambition. Remember the secret to joy isn't the satisfaction of all our desires, but rather the sanctification of our desires that they may be truly and eternally satisfied in Jesus. Because when knowing him is your greatest good, Guess what? Even the darkest of trials becomes the servant of your joy. It won't happen automatically. If you bury your head in the sand, so to speak, and just wait passively for the storm to pass by, your faith won't be strengthened, okay? But if you choose to persevere, if you fight, even through tears, to trust and obey Jesus every step of the way, your faith will grow, my friend. The Lord promises as much, and and generations of faithful saints, here's a plug for reading Christian biography, testify to the same. Rightly embraced, trials are a cause for joy. Why? Because they strengthen our faith. That's the first reason. Here's the second, okay? Verses five to eight, trials are cause for joy because they teach us to pray with faith. They teach us to pray with faith. You know, it's it's the rightly embraced part of our response to trials that's so difficult, isn't it? You know, I, I said earlier, what? Rightly embraced trials strengthen our faith. But but that's that's the hard part. We're not born knowing how to trust and obey the Lord when life is hard, are we? We're not born possessing wisdom. We have to learn the art of godly living. So what do we do in the midst of a trial when we don't know what to do? You ever experienced that? Life just kind of smacks you in the face and you open the pantry door called wisdom and you kind of poke your head in and nothing on these shelves. <laughs> well, look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, anybody lacking wisdom right now? If any of you are struggling to know how to trust and obey God in the midst of trial, do what? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Think about this. What do we tend to do 
when trying to decide how to respond to a particular trial. We tend to go one of two ways, okay? We follow our own thoughts and desires as if we are the fount of wisdom, or we go with the flow and do whatever other people say we should do or think we should do as if they are the fount of wisdom. We, we look in or we look out when we really need to do what? We need to look up. Daniel 2 verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Why? To whom, to God, belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Okay, well, what sort of understanding begs the question, must we have in order to receive wisdom from God? Listen, we have to understand that he alone is the fount of wisdom and ask him for it instead of trying to dig it out of ourselves or extract it from the world around us. There's a beautiful simplicity to verse five here. If you lack wisdom, ask God, period. It's not complicated. It's not convoluted. It might be hard. It usually is hard. He might tell you something you don't want to hear. Or he might not tell you everything you want to know. But whenever we ask, whenever we pray, Lord, give me wisdom. Show me right now, Father, how to trust and obey you in the midst of this trial. What will God do? Through his word through his spirit, through, through godly counsel, he will what? Give generously. You kids remember the, the movie Incredibles? One of my favorites. There's an insurance agent in there who's always looking for a way to say no and deny the claim. You know, our God is not at all like that. Our God is what? He's eager to say yes, to say yes. He's not selfish, he's lavish. He's not looking for a reason to deny your claim, your request for wisdom. He's eager to give it. So ask for wisdom, friend. Pray humbly and sincerely for the sake of God's priorities and purposes and it will be, verse five, given to you. But you know, those qualifications that I just added there are really important. Why? Because of what James says in verse six. Look there. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. You know, God is eager to answer our prayers for wisdom, okay, especially in trials. But, but there is a kind of prayer he will not answer. A, a prayer that lacks integrity. Okay, the request of a heart that is, that's divided. A, a spiritual fence sitter as it were, that, that's toying with following Jesus while trying to keep one foot firmly planted in the kingdom of this world. Okay, so it's what James calls 
the double-minded or double-souled man in verse 8, who's trying to integrate the perks of Christianity with all the pleasures of sin. You know, as Christians, we, we can hear the word doubt. Maybe you even, as you were listening to me, read verse 6. You heard that and immediately got worried, brothers and sisters. You know, oh no. Oh no. I genuinely trust God, I think. But there are times I really struggle. My, my faith is weak. I, I feel like the man in Mark 9 who, who said what to Jesus? I believe. Help my unbelief. He perceived both in his heart on some level. That is not the kind of doubt that James is talking about here in a primary sense. Okay, the, the kind of doubt that James decries in verse 7 is the attitude that presumes we can cash in on God's help absent wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ. You know, Douglas Moo says it this way. I think this is really helpful. James is not claiming that prayers will never be answered where any degree of doubt exists. For some degree of doubt, on at least some occasions, is probably inevitable in our present state of weakness. Rather, he wants us to understand that God responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent, a spiritual integrity, Pray to the shifting winds of motive and desire. The doubter wants wisdom from God one day and the wisdom of the world the next. Friend, as Jesus said over and over again, you cannot serve two masters. That there's no middle ground when it comes to following Jesus and experiencing the blessing of his wisdom and his guidance and his help in the storms of life. If you sit on the fence if you just dabble in religion only when it suits your fancy or life feels especially hard, you are always going to be unstable in all your ways. Okay, the fluctuating, and, and be honest, contradictory desires within you, plus all the changing circumstances around you, are going to make you like what? A, a swell of water on the sea. You, you ever tried to watch it and keep your eye on where did that one little part of the ocean go? You, 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 can hard, you can't tell because it's always getting blown about. In contrast, if you go all in with Jesus, you will find, my friend, an enduring stability for your soul in all your ways. Trials give us an opportunity to pray with faith to cry out to God for wisdom because we've set all our hope fully and completely for salvation on him. And if you pray like that, friend, God's response may very well be, you ready for this? (laughs) To lead you into another trial. Do you think I was gonna say that? (laughs) Why do I say that? Well, remember, How does God forge in us the spiritual strengths we lack? Wisdom included. Well, what did we see in verses two to four? 
He ordains trials of various kinds. Okay, answering our prayer for wisdom by what? By testing our faith. Because it's through the sanctifying force of trials that we grow in the art of godly living and wisdom. So pray for wisdom. But don't say God didn't come through if the trial keeps right on going. That might be the best answer God could ever give you for your prayer. Trials are a cause for joy when they teach us to pray with faith. So why why are they cause for joy? First, because they strengthen our faith. Second, because they teach us to pray with faith. And finally, because they reveal the true reward of faith. And here we're focusing on verses 9 to 12. So look there with me. James' admonition in these verses is kind of the opening salvo. It's like like the opening games at the Olympics. (laughs) that he's going to come back to again and again and again, okay? He's he's launching his main point, and then the rest of the book, we're going to keep coming back to these issues of how do we think about poverty and riches and wealth and money. But the main point here is that the true reward of faith isn't found in the stuff of this world. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. You know, I, th- I think on one level, this whole coronavirus experience has revealed something globally. Uh, we've seen in all the economic damage this has caused a wake-up call that the riches of this world have never been, are not, and will never be eternal. You know, a single virus, a single pandemic can bring all your wealth crashing to the ground. It could evaporate tomorrow. And even if it remains until you die, you can't take it with you. It doesn't matter how much money you have, friend, you will eventually fade away. You know, as, as summer comes upon us, go out sometime in your yard or drive through your neighborhood and, and just look at the, the burned, dead, withered grass. That, that's what James is pointing to and saying, see that? That's a reminder of the futility of our life. Trials have a wonderful way, if we'll let them, of reminding us of our mortality. They they make us feel weak. They make us feel vulnerable. And I say that's not good. And God says that's really good. (laughs) Why? Because we are weak. And we are vulnerable. Every one of us is like that blade of grass. Here today and gone tomorrow. So how then should we live as Christians? Given that. Well, if you're poor in this world... Focus and glory in the fact that you are infinitely rich in Christ. <laughs> okay, your worth and value as his blood-bought son or daughter couldn't be greater. You're already seated with him in the heavenly places, Christian. You are Jesus' co-heir. All things are his. So guess what? All things are yours. 
And therefore, one day, you will see that in full. So don't find your identity in your money. Find your identity in Jesus. But what if you're rich in this world? Which, by the way, is probably 95%, if not more, of everyone who is listening to me right now. Okay? What do we do? Well, take care to keep your eyes on the fleeting nature of your wealth. It's not going to last. It's not. It it doesn't make you any better or more valuable in the sight of God. So, So you need to keep the day of your death in view and invest your money now through generous giving that stores up treasures in heaven. James is going to remind us over and over again that that the test of prosperity and poverty are both among the most significant trials we encounter in this life, brothers and sisters. They both present a test of faith, tempting us to either lust for or attach our hearts to the vanity of wealth and riches. But that's a fatal mistake because true blessing. The real reward of faith in Christ isn't found in this life. It's the joy and blessing of eternal life with Jesus in heaven. Look at verse 12. It's the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What what do we tend to do in trials? Well, we say, okay, God, I'll do it your way for a while, but only if you come through for me quickly and I make more money or live longer, or have fewer troubles in this world than the next person, than Joe over there, who's not trying to follow you at all. Friends, that's not faith. That's not wholehearted trust or obedience. That's manipulation. And God will have none of that. The blessing of remaining steadfast under trial isn't delivered by Amazon. It's given by King Jesus when he welcomes you into his eternal dwelling place. And so that means the test may remain until the day your Savior calls you home. The test may strip away from you everything that you value in this world. But know this, Christian, a day of great reversal is coming. The day of glory will dawn and no one who hopes in him will be put to shame. Every tear, every difficult hour, every sleepless night, every loss you suffer in this world on the path of following Jesus will be rewarded with eternal joy. So endure the test. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't get anemic. Don't get apathetic. Don't stop running hard after Jesus. Our trials become a cause for joy when they strip away all of our false hopes and refocus our attention on the true reward of our faith. Trials strengthen our faith. Trials teach us to pray with faith. And trials reveal the true reward of our faith. And for those reasons, I say to you with James this morning, consider it all joy when you face trials 
of various kinds. Now I can hear the objection. So hear this. The presence of joy never entails the absence of sorrow. It simply means that there is something distinct, something noticeably different about how we respond as Christians to the trials of this life that cause the world to stop and listen and do what? Ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us. So no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, you, my friend, in Christ, continue to rejoice in the Lord. It's not what super Christians do. It's not what pastors preaching into cameras two feet in front of their face alone are supposed to do. It's the privilege and distinctive mark of every genuine son and daughter of the king. May may that be said of you this week, my friends. Whenever you encounter a trial, you have good reason to rejoice because that trial is working and accomplishing something in you that by the grace of God could not be more valuable. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we need your help. There's a part of my heart, even in preaching this, that's just saying, yeah, are you living like that, pal? Father, we confess to you right now just all the ways that that our response in trial has been anything but joy. Our go-to first gear shift, Lord, it's been grumbling or complaining or checking out or just giving you the cold shoulder or shaking our fist at you or becoming apathetic spiritually or or so many other things trying to escape distracting ourselves Lord our, our lives are filled with case studies for the opposite of what your word calls us to hear and Lord for that right now we pray forgive us God Thank you that we can confess our sin to you, knowing that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, including every last drop of our grumbling and complaining. And so we pray right now, Lord, that you would make us a people who are distinct and different and that we rejoice in our trials. Use them this week, Lord, to strengthen our faith, to teach us to pray with faith, and to refocus our eyes on the true reward of faith. We love you. We thank you for your word. I pray right now that no matter where my friends are sitting, or standing, listening to this, including all those who are holding screaming children right now, I ask that we would not be quick to forget what we have just heard. But that you would be our joy. And so becoming like you would be our highest ambition. And as a result, 
no matter what trial smacks us in the face this week, we would say with James, I rejoice. We pray in your name. Amen. I want to bless you, pronounce this benediction over you from part of the passage I just preached. So receive this benediction, this blessing from the Lord. Not because I have the power to give it, but because we serve a great Savior who's ever interceding for us. May you count it all joy this week, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing day after day that the testing of your faith by the grace of God is producing steadfastness. And may you let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord and rejoice in your trials. God bless you.